Hey everybody, welcome to episode 12 of the podcast. Today we're discussing the other ordinance of the church. We talked about baptism the other day, and now we are turning to communion. We'll talk about the four major views of communion, and at the end we'll have a time of question and answer kind of FAQ style. So we hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Church Matters Podcast, a ministry of Redeemer Church. Hey there, Redeemer Church. This is Gabe. Uh, with Jared and Riley, and you are listening to Church Matters, a podcast designed to help the church grow in applying a biblical worldview to all of life. Um, Amen. What's up, guys? Yeah. How's it going? (laughs) Uh, We're in one of the last few nice days of, uh, I guess we're technically in fall. So it's it's one of the, the, the... only nice days of the fall, I guess. I feel like we get a, a good month in September, and then October is uh, progressively. It's like the I've got downward spirals yeah. on the mind. I've been studying judges, so that's how I'm picturing now the September seasons. was as we go deeper and deeper <laughs> into the fall, deeper and darker, and yeah, as September the book gets deeper really and darker. Nice. I wish I could say that I planned that purposefully. That like as the Northwest gets darker and more depressing, <laughs> we're getting we get deeper into and the darker and, and more depressing parts of the Book of Judges. Yeah, it, it goes together Holy well though. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, well, how are you guys doing? Doing good. Yeah. I think. Oh, looks like we're a little bit smoky outside, so we might have. Still man, smoky. it's been messing with my. Yeah. I think it's my allergies. Yeah, but, it's pretty bad. Yeah, I don't know either that or I'm getting a cold. But man, my I think it's my allergies have been going nuts with the smoke and all that good stuff out there. But yeah, Riley, you doing well? I'm doing good. Just coming off a conference in Portland. So that oh, was yeah, really fun. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I talked to Cameron uh, Henson, about that. Yeah. yeah. It was a good time. So focused on congregational singing and, mm-hmm. and worship leading and getting the congregation to, to follow along with you. Mm-hmm. And sing Probably well, a lot so. easier yeah. when you got a bunch of worship leaders. That oh, are low, it's right? tough. <laughs> it's tough. Like going from a room like that yeah. when everybody sings like full out and it's like, uh-huh. there's probably like 300 people there. That's good. So. You know why though? That's it's it's a room full of a bunch of worship leaders yeah, yeah. that they're like, this is how I'd sing if I was. It <laughs> absolutely is. Cardi, I was know? saying that on the drive back. I was like, I, I don't usually get to sing like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because at our church, I feel like it would be extremely distracting yeah. for me to be yeah, singing yeah, yeah, like yeah. full volume. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but maybe I should just do that and yeah. see who joins me. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, I'll or you're also typically leading, doing. right? Or yeah. you're yeah. So yeah, sit in the back. Um, yeah. When I do sit in the congregation. Right. I feel like I have to hold back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's, that's my own hangups. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But that was really good and uh, and looking forward to it next year. Hopefully more people will come with me. So Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Is that an annual thing they do every year? Yeah, they did in 2019 and okay. then had to take a couple of years off because of the pandemic. And okay. then this is the second time they've done it. So, yeah. Yeah, they're going to cool. do it again next year. Very nice. Not too far to get drive either. It seems no, like that's nice. you know yeah. normally all the Christian stuff happens right. in the south, and we have a long way to go. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of cool when something you know Christian, something in Christendom happens uh, within driving distance. Yeah. yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Well, do more of that Pacific Northwest. Right. Thanks. Exactly. Um, or we just got to start doing it here, man. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we are talking about a topic that. Uh, I'm excited to get into a little bit with you guys. We've um, kind of hit on this in the last sermon series before we were in Judges um, in the Meals with Jesus sermon series, um, and uh, but it's communion. We're going to be talking about communion. The Lord's also known as the Lord's Supper. Um, actually, it's funny. Even in that terminology, the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, right? There's different emphases. Mm-hmm. I feel like those different... Uh, those words or phrases actually give to it. But yeah, we're going to be talking about that today and uh, exciting topic. Exciting. Um, I hope it is at least for, 
for everybody here too, and for those listening. But I always enjoy a good conversation about bread and wine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we it's a little early in the day. I was going to say we should have some bread and wine here. We could be uh, mm-hmm. in, enacting, in, but no, that wouldn't that would actually defeat where we're yeah, going exactly. to talk about. I was about say, uh, I I've, yeah. I've seen the uh, yeah, show notes. Seen my and, outline. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about that. It's it's one of uh, well, depending on I guess if you're a Catholic, which we're not, we're Protestant, and so um, it's one of the two ordinances or sacraments uh, of the church, and uh, that's one of the things I didn't put up there. Is is it an ordinance or a sacrament? But yeah, we'll get into that a little bit when we talk about the different views, probably. So, um, but it's one of the two in the Protestant Church. Uh, Ordinances, sacraments, and um, and so it's important. We believe that uh, what makes it something an ordinance is that it was actually instituted by, ordained by uh, Jesus. And so baptism is the other ordinance, um, and then communion at the Lord's Supper, um, Passover meal before he went to the cross uh, would be why it's sometimes called an ordinance. Other times it's called a sacrament um, because there's something that some views, at least in the, their view of communion, would see something sacred as happening, that there's actually, um, that it's more than just a uh, bare symbol, which we'll get into a little bit. So uh, before we get into kind of some of the deeper theology stuff, I'm uh, I'm kind of, well, no, let's do it a little bit differently. Uh, I was going to ask you guys what you grew up with um, in terms of these views. Uh, I would guess that we all grew up with the same. I, I would guess so too. Yeah. So uh, let's just get into it then. There's, there are four main views of communion and the Lord's Supper um, that, that are held within Christianity. Um, many of us probably grew up with one, maybe two of these, um, but there are four different views. The first view is transubstantiation. And uh, it's a big word that is uh, basically just means that the elements themselves, the bread and the wine, um, actually turn into the uh, metaphysically the body and blood of Christ. So they wouldn't say that um, you, you know you are going to eat it, eat the bread and go, man, this tastes funny, uh, or drink of the uh, wine and say this tastes strange. Um, But there is a real way that physically those elements become the the body and blood of Christ. That is the view held by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, It's why uh, there's a priest that is uh, needed to oversee it because it's actually the priest that is able to um, perform the, the rite that actually has those elements turn from ordinary bread and ordinary wine into the body and blood of Jesus. Um, well, my computer just totally freaked out there for a minute. It's overheating. If if my computer my computer's been <laughs> overheating and so it just blows up here. Um, I promise guys this wasn't we, it wasn't we don't planned. actually we don't actually have a plane flying yeah, over. That's just yeah, no, exactly. game's computer. Yeah. I know if you hear just a, a low hum, that is my computer overheating that needs to be attended to uh, soon. <laughs> Um, but so that's transubstantiation. Yeah, I think, uh, can I chime yeah, in? Go ahead. Aquinas, when he was writing about this, mm-hmm. dif- differentiated to make it because uh, the metaphysical thing is kind of hard to understand sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so he would say it's the substance is what changes. That's the word trans substance, mm-hmm. change substance. But the accidents of the thing, so the appearance of it and the scent, like the things you can sense about it do not change. So mm-hmm. it still looks like bread and wine. Mm-hmm. But like you're saying, metaphysically, the substance is actually Jesus's body and blood, right? Am I right. saying that right? Right. Yeah. Yep. And uh, 
we'll uh, should we give like what the now nah, we'll we'll get into that later like why they say that or what the problem I think is with that view but that's that's the first view transubstantiation it's largely the Roman Catholic view okay second view is consubstantiation um, this is typically the view that you practiced or or that uh, the Lutheran Church holds to there uh, and so they also would say that the um, the elements. There's a, a physical way in which Christ is present uh, with the elements, but that they would say that the, the body and the blood of Jesus, the bread and the wine do not literally become the body and blood of Jesus, but they would say that he is under and through the elements, uh, hence that little prefix, consubstantiation, yeah. right? I think the, the really uh, cliche way of saying it is, is in with and under yeah. the elements. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Or sometimes the analogy is given of a, a sponge with water, right? Mm. Where the uh, sponge is not the water, the water is not the sponge, and yet there's a real way in which the water is present in the sponge, with the sponge, right? Yeah. But it's not the sponge. So mm. that's largely the Lutheran view, consubstantiation. But again, there is a, a physicalness to the uh, presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, okay? Then the third view, uh, this is the view I'm guessing that you guys probably grew up with. It's the view that I grew up with, uh, the memorial view. Um, largely, this view is held in Baptistic uh, circles and Baptist circles. Um, uh, Zwingli, Holdrick Zwingli, one of the, the reformers uh, in the day of Martin Luther, he uh, held to this view, articulated this view. Um, and that's that when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, that that should be uh, taken figuratively and not literally. So that it is clear, it's symbolic in the way that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, uh, I'm the door, I'm the vine, right? As he says these other things, mm -hmm. that um, it, is, it is purely a memorial meal. Yeah. So it is, it is purely a symbol, right? Yeah. Yep. Interesting enough, though, yeah. they, uh, the Baptists have only held that since around, around the time of Charles Finney. Huh. Yeah. They used to be more, like the, during the Puritan era, they were more of the next, the next uh, one. The, you're gonna, the next one we're going to look yeah. at. I'd be curious, do you know why that mm -hmm. is, that there was such a shift? Okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe after I say this fourth view, I'd be curious uh, why yeah. that is. I don't actually know. So yeah. um, the, the fourth view is the spiritual presence view, which is largely the Reformed view. Um, Calvin uh, articulated this and, and wrote on this, and um, this is rejecting that there's a, a physical change to the bread and wine, um, but that Christ is present spiritually in a special way, but he's not present physically, so that there's, there is true spiritual communion that's taking place between the Lord and uh, his church, um, but it is, it is beyond just a a symbol that's meant to provoke us to remember. It is It is that, but it's actually more than that. It's actually a means by which Christ is um, fellowshipping with his people and a means by which we are, are truly um, being nourished by Christ spiritually, that there's a, a true sharing in Christ that takes place for the church in in uh, in that view. So Christ, the, a differentiating element is Christ is not physically present, but he is truly spiritually present in um, the communion act. He's, he's truly feasting with his people in that way. Mm -hmm. Okay, so those are the four main views. Uh, transubstantiation, 
largely held by Catholics, consubstantiation, largely held by Lutherans, memorial view, largely held by Baptists, and then spiritual presence view, largely the Reformed view. Yeah. But you said something, Jared, that kind of piques my curiosity. So yeah. why is it that there was a, a shift? So now I said that most Baptists today hold to the memorial view primarily, mm-hmm. but you're saying that that's actually a shift that took place in, what did you say, 1900s? Uh, sometime recent? around, so sometime around Charles Finney, so early uh-huh. 1800s, okay. or, or sorry. Late 1800s? Late 1700s, early 1800s, oh, around okay. that time. Second Great uh, Awakening, Yeah, right? D.L. Moody. So uh, it actually started a little bit back when Spurgeon's day. So Spurgeon mm-hmm. was, he was holding on to the more spiritual presence view. Okay. Uh, but then there was other preachers who were kind of downplaying it for some mm-hmm. reason. I don't really know that part. Uh, but then when it reached, uh, you know, the American shores, the revivalism and uh, like having an altar call and that anxious bench kind of understanding, they replaced the table with, hey, come forward and present your life to Christ. Mm. And so then the table got moved out of the way in place Mm. of basically having the altar call as kind of the more Mm. important thing than than the actual Lord's Supper. Mm. And then it switched to basically a memorial view. So whereas Baptist churches then, at least most of the Baptist churches I knew growing up, they would have an altar call every Sunday, but you'd only take the Lord's Supper either once a quarter, once a month, because it was really you know, mm. It wasn't as much important anymore oh. now that you had the altar call. That's interesting. So that's, I would have thought that was uh, almost the reverse, that like because they held to a memorial view, um, that it allowed them to more and more minimize it. Mm. Like no, going I, back to Zwingli, right? Like Zwingli's articulating a memorial view, obviously before the right. early 1800s. But the Baptists, that that wasn't... So the argument then is, well, where did the Baptists come from? Yeah. So some people argue that the Baptists came out of the Puritan line, and Mm -hmm. some people argue that it came out of the Anabaptist line. Right. And so I believe more uh, that it came out of the Puritan along with, with, so like... John, John Bunyan and Spurgeon, like uh-huh. when you look at that, that's where it looks like it comes from. And if you read the writings of, say, like the Purit- the Baptist Puritans of that time, uh, then they were more, or the Baptist in the Puritan time, they everything that they express is more of a spiritual presence mm. view. It's more Calvinistic. I'm sure this is fascinating to all of two people who are yes, listening. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, but to me, it's actually fascinating because I, I would have... One of them's me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would have said uh, sort of... Uh, I guess intuitively, just what I understood, I, I thought that um, the the Baptists would have traced their history more to the Anabaptists than to the oh, Puritans. No. I would have seen points of crossover. Yeah, but, there's yeah. points of crossover in the fact that Baptists were the Anabaptists were rebaptizing. Right, but there's a lot of difference between the Anabaptists and the oh. real mm-hmm. Baptists. They just share. They just share a common rebaptizing. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, Anabaptist the, isn't although, just uh, like the name of a particular kind of denomination of Baptists. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, I mean, there's, although there are stories, uh, there's much wrong with the Anabaptist movement, but there, uh, there's stories of that. I mean, when they were being persecuted, yeah. uh, that they, they were, were actually being they, killed. Yeah. They were, being, they right. would, they drowned. would drown right. them like as, sort of a, as an irony yeah, right. to, to do all that. Yeah. And so it's, it's actually set. There's a story and this from church history, my, my church history professor, Michael Hakem, will love that I still remember the story. But there's a story of one of them being chased down, and he uh, they're running across a lake, and the guy chasing him falls into the frozen lake, wow. and he turns around to pull him out because mm-hmm. he's like, this guy needs saving. He pulls him out, and the guy arrests him, and then, then he's murdered for having wow. an antibiotic you. That's really nice of him. Yeah. I was like, man, a guy saves you, and you turn around. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, okay, so then the – so Holdrick Zwingli, the reformer, uh, he certainly articulated a memorial view. Um, 
that would have had a, a large influence on the Anabaptists. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you're saying that the the Baptists weren't as influenced by that view until late till, 1800s yeah. or early 1800s. Yeah, until the revivalism kind of Interesting. came up. Okay, yeah. and even then it was more of a practical kind of thing. Of like, yeah, it was more of that altar here people yeah. people coming forward for the altar call. Hmm. So all three of us kind of grew up with that more memorial view. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds even though like I didn't grow up Baptist, it was just yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it was it, it was just seen. As well, I think it became symbolic. a dominant view in America mm-hmm. yeah, uh, during that like time. It. Yeah, and now I'm hearing more of articulated more of that spiritual presence view. Why would you? What, what was the shift there from how we grew up to how I don't think to more spiritual presence? I, I wouldn't. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that there's that the still massively dominant view is the memorial. Oh view. yeah, yeah. But for oh, okay. those. In, those of us in this room. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> oh, for I see. So, to, how did we shift to that? Yeah, and why? View? Yeah, and why? Uh, well, uh, hopefully because I think it's the more biblical view. And just <laughs> as know. as I started to think about those things uh, more deeply and go, okay, well, what do I think it means when Jesus says that uh, this is His body and this is His blood? What what does that actually mean? Is it only? Uh, a symbol. Um, h- how important is the Lord's table meant to to be to the church? And looking at church history and seeing its importance there, and um, just considering some of those things. So this is this has been my view for uh, probably since seminary. So that'd be 2000, uh, 2014, 2013. That's probably been my my view since then. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I, so I, I think it's it, it's also a view that as I became exposed to Reformed theology, um, probably more in 2008 or so, 2007, 2008, that this was just part of my progressive learning and just thinking more deeply about theology, period. Um, and right, sort of had the vestiges of, uh, of what I grew up with, and that's just kind of downloaded, you know? And then as you're going through time uh, and and examining, what do I actually think? And let me test those things against Scripture. And as I'm learning a little bit more, and then I started to go, oh, wait, how, yeah, what about this area? What, what about this area? What about, you know? And that still happens to some degree, just with less stuff now, because I've had more time to think through more areas, basically. So mm. is that similar for you? Or yeah, same, yeah, it's the same for me. I uh like I just kind of autoplayed it with like mm-hmm. basically growing up in a memorial view that that was my my position until someone said why do you believe that yeah and I was like because uh, my pastor said so yeah, and uh, then during seminary really had to think through deal with uh, you know even in church history classes mm-hmm. and then and then systematic theology classes on thinking through the Lord's Supper and what it means and why we do it, mm. thinking through those issues and then coming out on the other side going, wow, I had a really weak understanding of the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. and which I remember in one class like going through that and then you know trying to figure out whether or not I actually believed that. And once I did, the next Sunday just being like, wow, this is way more enjoyable and meaningful mm-hmm. uh, than it was previously. Mm-hmm. My guess is, and I don't know this for, for sure, but my guess is that most people, even at Redeemer, probably hold to a uh, memorial view. I, that's my guess. I, I don't know that for sure. So if that's you and you're listening to this, uh, my guess would be that the view you grew up with, if you grew up in the church, uh, was a memorial view. 
And uh, usually then what happens is people many times only know two different views. They know transubstantiation, which is the Catholic view, and they go, okay, sometimes not even rejecting it on theological grounds, just going, that sounds gross. That's weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that turns into Jesus' blood. That turns into his body. Yuck. I don't want to eat body and blood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so then memorial view is the only other option that seems like is often presented. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, not even always on theological grounds, just simply, I think, on the gross-out factor uh, and just what makes more sense to kind of common sense intuition, people pick the memorial view. Um, But again, I also think people grow up with that. I'm not saying there's not people who, um, by good conscience and through study, have come to a memorial view. Um, I just don't know that that's the majority of of ways that people actually get there. So... um, there are two other views, consubstantiation, which I mentioned, and then there's spiritual presence view. And so this kind of – we've now already said a little bit what um, what our view is, uh, and that's the view of uh, the, the reformers, the reform view, uh, spiritual presence, that that's actually what's happening in the uh, Lord's Supper, in the act of communion. And so uh, – Anyone, we get, I gave a bit of a description on the spiritual presence view. Uh, anyone want to sort of unpack that a bit? Anybody want to say what the spiritual presence view is? You guys want me to do that? You can do that. Okay. Riley? Go for it. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, so a c- couple ways to think about this. One would be... In fact, can I, can I yeah. ask a question to yeah. lead into that? Uh, consubstantiation and spiritual presence sometimes yeah. seem to be very overlapped to me. Can you okay. explain how they are differentiated? Different. Yeah, themselves? so consubstantiation, yeah. physical, still physical There's still with Jesus. Some, yeah. So Jesus is is, is physically body is present. He, it does not change. Those elements <laughs> don't change into Jesus, right? That's the, the sponge in the water example. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sponge does not turn into the water, even if it soaks up all of the water, right? Mm-hmm. It's still a sponge, and there's still water that is distinguished from it. And yet they are both truly present. But the the consubstantiation view would be that there's a physical presence of Jesus with the, the elements, with, with the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> the spiritual presence view gives it away in the name, right? <laughs> Which is that Christ is present truly, but spiritually. So the way you would look at that is you'd say, okay, um, well, Jesus is even now truly human, truly God, right? Even right now. So right now Jesus has a physical body, even right now. It didn't, in his ascension, uh, burn off, and now he's just a uh, spiritual-only being again. He he has a physical body, yet he is also truly divine, okay? So here's where we get into uh, a, a bit of a um, <laughs> difficult, uh, paradoxical, kind of mysterious uh, way of understanding Christ, but I think we have to hold both of these things true. In his humanity, being truly human, he cannot be in more than one place at once. Okay, he is not omnipresent as a as a with a human body. Um, he is he is truly present in heaven right now. Okay, physically, yet as being truly divine, one of the properties of being divine is that he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. At, at, he's able to be present at all places, right at the same time. Um, one of the uh, conditions of being human is that you are not omnipotent, right? You are not omnipotent. You are do not have all power. Um, but yet, truly, in being divine, he does have all power, right? Mm-hmm. And so these things are united in his one nature, or in, in his nature, rather. 
And um, so the spiritual presence view would be that Christ is spiritually present with his people because he is divine. He can be spiritually present with his people in the act of communion. But we would say he he cannot be physically present with his people um, because that would deny a property of his humanity, which would be saying that human, human beings can be omnipresent and we don't believe that they, they can be. So just like Jesus, when he walked the earth in the incarnation, he was not able to be um, present in more than one place at once. He, he was present in one place at one time. Um, yet in, in his divine uh, attributes, he can be present everywhere at the same time spiritually. So um, that would be the spiritual presence view is that now, even within the reform view, I've heard two different kinds of nuances of this. One is that in the Lord's Supper, through the Holy Spirit, we as God's people actually spiritually ascend into the throne room of God, into the presence of God, and that we feast spiritually with Christ, um, are nourished by him in heaven, that we ascend there. Uh, that That is a within the Reformed view. The other is that Christ descends to uh, feast with his people spiritually, to meet them at the, at the table. Um, my own view is I think Christ descends to be with his people um, rather than we ascend, although there is biblical uh, language that could warrant both. Mm. Have you guys heard that distinction before? Mm-hmm. I haven't. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think the verse I think is in Ephesians um, that talks about... Seated uh, with Christ right, in the heavenly places. Right, seated with mm. Christ right now in the heavenly places, mm-hmm. right? And so you would say, oh, well, we're not actually seated with Christ in the heavenly places, um, meaning I'm still physically here, and yet, truly, there is a way in which, because we're in the Holy, because the Holy Spirit is in us, and because of the Trinitarian, the way the Trinity works, that we are spiritually present with Christ right now, seated in the heavenly places. Mm-hmm. And that part of Paul's argument is, if you're seated in the heavenly places already, and that's that's guaranteed because you're already there, then why would you doubt that you are going to be in eternity with Christ one day? Because in a, in some sense, spiritually, you already are seated with Christ, right? right? Um, so that's that's uh, a one sort of way of understanding what it means that we spiritually ascend uh, to uh, be nourished by Christ in the Lord's Supper. Um, what are some other things that we're convincing for you guys? What are some other things that you, uh, when you think about the spiritual presence for you, uh, what were some other elements that were convincing for you or why is it compelling to you? The the thing that really probably compelled me most is that when Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, mm-hmm. said, take, eat, this is my body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so having to wrestle with what does is mean. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds silly, but that's really <laughs> like, so what does that, it, does that mean that it's, this is a, because like uh, Zwingli said that this is a sign of my body, mm-hmm. but that's not in the text. Uh, literally it is, this is my body. So having to, you know, and, and this is my blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that when I think through those things, I know that it's not his literal blood. Mm-hmm. I know that it's not the transubstantiation. I don't think that's true. Uh, but I do think that I have to wrestle with what does that mean? And so the only thing I can come to is that I'm feasting on it spiritually mm-hmm. and that I am Christ has come to sit with us. And so whenever I look at the Psalms and it says, you prepare a, a table for, uh, for me in the presence of my enemies, mm-hmm. that is the table at which we sit at mm-hmm. when Christ has, has been you know, sacrificed and we feast with him in his presence. And so I think that uh, 
that's why the spiritual presence you started to appeal to me more after thinking through what does is mean. That's good. What about you, Riley? What what is as you said you've kind of shifted in that view too. What is uh been compelling to you. Yeah, in that I don't shift. think I'm I'm quite as uh, settled as as mm-hmm. y'all are in this issue, but I think I'm I'm certainly shifting that way. Um, one of the things, and I don't want to make the entire argument based on tradition, but I think church history is compelling as well. Just in the fact that that the church at at large has held an element of mystery, mm-hmm. an element of nuance in their positions on communion for more than a thousand years, mm-hmm. uh, and that's I think that's something that w- we should at least take into account. And not uh, not drop super lightly, <laughs> you know. Not mm-hmm. just a. I don't want to throw the baby out of the bath out with the bathwater with that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can see the I can see the problems with uh, transubstantiation and, and even consubstantiation. Uh, but I don't want to go. Uh, well, let's just do the extreme thing, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, uh, transubstantiation seems wrong, so we'll go all the way to the other side of the mm-hmm. spectrum and and look at the memorialist view. Mm. Uh, and then I, I think you also see the importance of that practice for the early church. They mm-hmm. devoted themselves to prayer and the breaking of bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, it's a common, as they should have, <laughs> Jesus instituted it, it's a common practice of the early church and something that they put a, a high uh, emphasis on. And so I, don't, I also don't want to downplay that. It's as important as prayer was for mm-hmm. them, uh, which is very important. Mm-hmm. So. I, I don't know that I'd, I'd say I'm quite uh, like firmly planted mm-hmm. in spiritual presence yet, mm-hmm. but I'm definitely moving that way. Yeah. The the yeah, other okay. thing was uh, so there's the the institution of the Lord's Supper, but then also in First Corinthians, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. probably the probably the part where that's where I was going where, right now, yeah. where it starts to really because so you the first thing is you have to ask, answer is like what is that is mean, and then the, when Paul talks about it in First Corinthians ten is that. He says that this is the cup of blessing. So ten sixteen, the cup of blessing that we bless is is it not a participation, participation. Yeah. in the blood of Christ? The bread that we uh, break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one body, or it's because there's one bread. We who are many are one body. So there's something that when we do this, there's a uniting fact to it. Mm-hmm. But then also that it that participation word behind it is. A word for fellowship. There's koinonia, fellowship. It's right? koinonia. Yeah. It's the fellowship with Christ. It's yeah, the so fellowship we, through his body. When we talk about when the word participation, the, the reason why sometimes it's called communion is because of that word. Yeah. Right? Is it because koinonia just is talking about uh, communion yeah. or community rather. Right. So when we talk about having fellowship with one another or we have community groups, um, right? That's what we're talking about. Yeah. We're saying there's a real way in which you are fellowshipping with other people. Paul actually uses that same word later. Uh, I don't is that in first Corinthians 10, uh, as well. I can't remember, but where he talks about, um, oh yeah, down there in verse 21, he says, uh, or verse 20 rather, he says, no. So let me back up. So the verse that Jared just quoted from first Corinthians 10, you have, uh, 16 says the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation or communion in the blood of Christ. Okay. So he's saying, uh, is when, when we take communion, is that not having, uh, or when we take the Lord's supper, is that not us having communion or fellowship with the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is that not fellowship in the body of Christ? Then he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. So there's something about when we're taking that, that, uh, that bread and that element that we are actually, um, even uh, our, 
are being united as one body, right? We are, we are, uh, yeah, we're united as one body. Then he goes down a little bit further in verse 20. This is the point I wanted to make here. He says, uh, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Um, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So Paul is making this argument that when, when, uh, pagans would come and they would make sacrifices at these altars to various demonic beings, that there's a way in which they're actually fellowshipping, they're, they're having relationship with those demonic beings. And so Paul is saying to uh, the church, he's saying, I don't want you guys to be uh, doing that. I don't want you to be participants with demons. And then verse 20, 21, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So I think there's a way in which if you're saying that if you say that, which I would, that people in those sacrifices were actually fellowshipping, there was a demonic um, presence in which they were actually fellowshipping with mm -hmm. through their sacrificial acts, then Paul is juxtaposing that with what Christians are meant to do in the Lord's table yeah. and saying, you're meant to be fellowshipping, having communion with Christ, not with demons. And so stop doing both. Um, stop going to the table of demons and and eating with them and acting as a friend of them, and then going to the table of Christ and fellowshipping and having communion with him. Those two things are incompatible. And so if you think that truly um, the pagans were fellowshipping with demons, then uh, it's kind of this argument that Paul is making, then uh, you certainly should see that the fellowship you're having uh, in the Lord's table is with Christ. And so um, that was one of the arguments that was compelling to me in thinking about the spiritual presence view is that um, that we are truly fellowshipping, communing with Christ um, in the Lord's table. Mm. Any Anything else there that you would want to add? Yeah, I think just if you look at First Corinthians eleven too, uh, after the classic passage in mm -hmm. in uh, eleven twenty three through twenty six, uh, which ends for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Mm -hmm. um, Paul goes on to warn the Corinthians that they should do this in a in a worthy manner, like they should take special care to examine themselves. Mm -hmm. And he ends that with saying, "That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died." He puts such a uh, like a weighty thing on the taking of communion uh, that it's so important that he's saying that the reason that some of you are ill and have died is because you didn't examine yourself when you took communion. Mm. Uh, and so I think that that seems like a stronger argument to me when you're talking about spiritual presence or even consubstantiation than it is memorial. Memorial mm. seems like, well, it's a symbol though. Mm. Isn't that okay? Mm. <laughs> like, can't we do mm. orange juice and, and oyster crackers? Like that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and Paul seems to put much more of a premium on it. Mm. Yeah, one uh, tweak I might make to that that we're going to get into in a minute, but mm. is um, I actually think that, that that portion where it talks about examining yourself, Yeah, um, I don't think he's meaning so much uh, engage in an introspective act that determines whether or not you are worthy to take communion. Um, I think he... In contextually, what's going on there is the Corinthians are uh, they are partaking of the Lord's Supper in such a way that they are dishonoring the body, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're taking it in a way that is is uh, thinking less of the body, and so I think Paul in saying examine yourself is 
is talking less about examine your own individual sins and is more talking about examine yourself in light of the body. Are you treating yeah. the Lord's Supper as the unifying act that it's meant to, mm-hmm. which then does get into that idea of, okay, if in the Lord's Supper, what is meant to be seen is our fellowship with yeah. one another because we are also fellowshipping with Christ, then if that's being broken, then there's a way in which we've missed the point that it's not meant to just be us individually alone fellowshipping with Christ, uh, with Christ, but it's actually Christ's body united yeah. fellowshipping with Christ, yeah. right? So yeah, it's uh, there's that that pass it's uh, that passage is really rich, and depending on how you um, think about some of those things, it can become either very individualistic, or it can become more of a communal. Um, spirit, a way that, because even think about that language that we use for saying that we're the body of Christ mm-hmm. and we're all together, right? Yeah. Well, in what sense are we the body of Christ? Well, we're the body of Christ spiritually. We're united truly to Christ spiritually, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so we enjoy true fellowship, communion with one another because we are united spiritually to Christ in the same body, right? And so then when we go and take communion, um, I think it is a real way in which we are uh, being united to Christ spiritually through that act that we are mm. we are feasting with Him spiritually. So the other the other two points that I think, if I remember correctly, that helped yeah. me to think through these things was one when in John six when Jesus says, "Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me, mm-hmm. uh, and I in him." Mm-hmm. There is something spiritual to the fact that. Jesus didn't literally mean that if you come up right now and take mm-hmm. a chunk out of my arm with mm-hmm. your teeth that we will abide together. He w- That was more of a spiritual meaning of that you must feed on him uh, to have that abiding. And the other thing, and this one to a much lesser degree, but when uh, in Luke 4, John 4, uh, when Jesus meets the woman at the well mm-hmm. and she asks him a question of, you know, they say on that mountain, you say on this mountain, which mountain is it? And he says to her, truly, neither on that mountain or this mountain, but you must worship in spirit and in truth. Mm-hmm. We worship in spirit of of who Jesus is. And that's I think that lends to the spiritual presence of, of the Lord's Supper as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Good. So there's more, obviously. There are whole books written on this topic of spiritual presence, uh, the, the spiritual presence view of, of communion. Um, l- let me ask you this. I, don't, I didn't write this up on my outline here for you guys, but how does that change how we take communion? So let's say you're, mo- you're a person that's moved from a memorial view of communion only to a spiritual presence view. So let's say someone's still on that other side where they're like, yeah... I don't know. Uh, I, I think it, it is really just a symbol. Um, I don't think it's necessarily more than that. Uh, you know, I don't think Christ is necessarily spiritually meeting with his people in that meal. Um, how, how does it change if you go from a memorial view to a spiritual presence view? Taking communion. How, do, how does that change that for experientially? you? Yeah, experientially. I think for me that, uh, like I said, when I finally came around to understanding it this way, that it was it was actually more meaningful to me in the sense that, uh, especially with the memorial view in which I grew up in, which we took it, I think, once a quarter. I mean, it was like, if this is for a memory, like, apparently we only have to remember it once a quarter. Mm-hmm. But like, even if it was weekly and you're just remembering it, to me, there's a difference of going, oh, I'm I'm sitting here. I'm taking this. I still think it's meaningful mm-hmm. um, to take it and to remember that Christ has died and that I am saved because of His blood. But there's a wholly different thing of sitting down, going in this meal. I am eating with Christ. 
I am eating in his presence. He dines with me and I with him. And we are fellowshipping. We have that partaking, that koinonia together. There's a difference there than just saying, I'm sitting here by myself remembering, but rather it's me dining with, with Christ amongst his people. That's good. Yeah, I think for me, one way that it has, uh, it has shifted experientially again for me is the, uh, just the imagery of, of Christ in the church as uh, like the image of marriage for Christ in the church. Like if, when I come to communion with the body, I'm having a meal in the same way that I would have a meal with Nikki. Like there's mm-hmm. that kind of connection that there's such unity there between the church and Christ. And that makes that time much more special rather mm-hmm. than just, it's a sign of what Christ has done. Like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things, uh, I think there's a few ways it's shifted my experience of communion over the years. Uh, and I, I think it's continuing to, sh- to shift that really um, as I grow in applying this. Because there's a way in which you can kind of come to a, a theological understanding of something, which I have, and I've said that that several years ago. But there's another way in which that can become then a, an experiential, it sort of works its way into your experience and into um, just how you think of that. And... Um, that's not where it is yet for me, even though it's been all these years that I've convictionally sort of biblically believed this, uh, it's, it's been actually a process over the years to not default to thinking of it as just the memorial view or, um, in other ways that I grew up thinking about it. It, It's actually, um, it doesn't feel second nature yet. If I were to say it that way, you know, um, I also think there's just more, there's more reverence when you Mm -hmm. come to the table with that view. Uh, at least for me, there, I've experienced that I hold it more reverentially mm. when I'm when I'm thinking it more of the spiritual presence rather than mm-hmm. memorialist. There there seems to be more uh, more beauty and more deference that I that I bring mm. to that. Mm. So uh, the the passage I was I was thinking of that uh, just this last week that even struck me as I was uh, approaching communion and kind of preparing for that and praying about that was Romans 15, 7, when Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Okay. So Paul says that Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Okay. So here's how I connected this in my mind to communion is there's a way in which when I come to the church and someone greets me or welcomes me truly, uh, embraces me. Um, we we greet one another, not with a holy kiss. We don't do that now, but um, you know, like <laughs> there's genuine. The, yeah, yeah, we say peace be with you, and there's genuine warmth extended. If they're operating and I'm operating with a sense of this is not just me welcoming you, this is Christ welcoming you. I, I'm I'm greeting you as Christ has greeted me, and there's a real way in which I am now getting to serve as the body of Christ to you. So Christ is, in a sense, made incarnate through his people, through his church, okay, as the body of Christ. And so um, there's a way in which then I receive that warmth and that welcome, yes, from that individual Christian, but now there's a way in which it actually changes my worship and directs my worship differently to Jesus because I see that as an extension of, of his love, his warmth and welcome and fellowship of me, right? As they're mm-hmm. reflecting and welcoming me as Christ has welcomed them, then I'm actually experiencing something that's true of who Christ is, you know? And so there's a way in which I know him better because of that. And so I think that when I approach, for me, when I... Uh, approach the Lord's table, and I approach it with this uh, spiritual presence view, then I'm, 
I've just heard, if it was me preaching, I've, I've been preaching it to myself all week, and then I've just heard the, the words that came out of my mouth, and I've heard the declaration of Scripture that I'm also a sinner, that I'm also in need of grace, that I'm also in need of, of Jesus. And then as I go to the Lord's table, it's, I, I'm, it's like he then spiritually is actually there present to meet me. And so I'm even trying to shift in my language of how I talk about the Lord's table, that I don't think it's us coming and taking communion. I think it's us receiving communion, Mm -hmm. that it's actually Christ serving us, that as we receive those elements, there's a real way in which Christ is saying, I want to feast with you. I I, I want to nourish you. I want to bless you. I I want... So for me, In every Last Supper account, that's how it goes. Jesus is the one giving the bread. Exactly, right? The passage you preached from in Luke 22 when they see... 24, yeah, yeah, thank you. They they see him... 22 is, I think, the Lord's Supper. Supper. (laughs) Uh, They see him through the breaking of bread, right? They mm-hmm. see him as, as he does that through through the words that he's said to them and then also through the, the breaking of bread and, and taking communion basically yeah. with them. Right. And so I think there's a way in which we're meant to actually see and behold something of the, the presence of, the beauty of Jesus, the joy of knowing Jesus as we come and we receive those elements yeah. from and see it as us receiving them from him. Actually. Yeah, that is another thing that I think affected my view a yeah. little bit, uh, preaching that passage, uh, because it's very clear in that passage that uh, God is, Jesus is revealing himself in a specific way for a specific purpose, yeah. and the point that he chooses to reveal himself is at breaking bread mm. with them. There's a significance to that. He chose to do that for a reason. Yeah. Last thing I'll say on that is another practical implication is if I knew uh, that, let's say, let's say we heard as church. Hey, um, Jesus is throwing a feast, and he wants you there, right? Um, how would we go to that feast? Would we go to that feast head down, kind of downcast? Let me, mm-hmm. I'm recounting all of my sins. Uh, I guess that's one way we could approach the feast with Jesus. I think many of us, if we heard there was a feast with Jesus, and it was an open, he was doing an open house, let's say, and you could show up whenever you wanted to. Um, I don't think most of us would finish our work days out. I don't think most of us would sit there and make sure we got right with God first before we went to go. I think we just, if we have a right view of Jesus, we're going to run to Jesus, stop whatever else it is that we're doing, and we're going to be excited, filled with joy at getting to go be in the presence of Jesus, go be with him, right? Yeah, I think we kind of default to stopping 1 Corinthians 11, 26 early. Yeah. We, we cut it off and we say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And we stop there and right. we don't say the last three words until he comes. Yeah, right. Like that's great joy. Yeah. We're proclaiming that he died and is risen and returning. Right. That's yeah. beautiful. And if and if the Lord's Supper is sort of a mini foretaste appetizer uh, meal of the eternal meal that we'll yeah. eat with Jesus, I, I don't then I think there's meant to be joy as mm-hmm. we go and we receive a meal from Christ. You know? So uh, that's a way that it has very practically shifted uh, is if I believe I'm actually going to spiritually meet with Jesus, commune with Jesus in the receiving of these elements, then there's a joy that should be present in meeting with my Savior, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, So if I have a right view of him. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's continuity in between all that. So the first meal was ordained by Jesus, given out by Jesus, served by Jesus. The meal that we're going to have when we get to heaven is given by Jesus. And then now this meal that we do here in in the same line, in the same vein, is 
is put out on the table before yeah. us by Jesus. Totally. The bank, the the banquet of the lamb, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like yeah. the 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 wedding feast. Uh, all all of that imagery is celebratory. <laughs> you know, like if you go to a wedding feast and you're bummed out, uh, mm-hmm. then I guess maybe it's because she wanted to marry him and not you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or I, I don't know. Like that. <laughs> but like you know, like ideally, the person going to the wedding feast is excited. They're celebratory, um, right? Yeah. Uh, I want to yeah. point out because this is something that jumped out to me while reading these texts a little bit. Uh, two of the three synoptic gospels, Luke doesn't do this. Maybe he doesn't like singing, but two of the three, they also sing a <laughs> hymn. Link a hymn with it. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's singing that happens during that. And in the marriage supper of the lamb, yeah. there's singing that happens. Yeah. Uh, the church is a singing people. I'm coming off a conference. So I'm jazzed <laughs> yeah. about that. But, but that, that's okay. So with that, that's one of the reasons I actually, that we do sing yeah. as we come and re- receive communion Amen. Is, Preach. I, <laughs> is because I think that oftentimes Feasting and song go together, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so, and celebration and song go together. We see those things linked together all throughout Scripture. And, and so, in popular culture, you come together yeah. for a birthday party, you sing happy, right? Birthday. You sing it. So, yeah. I think as we come and receive, that we're meant to, uh, as we're receiving with joy, we're meeting in the presence of Christ spiritually. We're communing with Him. That it makes sense that we're also singing together as we're feasting together. You know. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it's also why I think, like, as we continue to deepen in our thinking of the, around this, I think people at Redeemer that are listening to this, they're going to start to notice that tonally, there's we're continuing to try to shift to have even like uh, a lot of times. I think that that last song or that first song right after the sermon was more contemplative, maybe even yeah. more uh, lament. Can I touch on that? Yeah, go ahead. This yeah. last weekend, we we sang, we did communion, and then we sang in Christ alone right yeah, after it. Right. And we did, if you know the arrangement of King's Kaleidoscope has an arrangement of In Christ Alone, and it starts very kind of somber and minor. Uh, And we intentionally decided we're not going to do that this week. (laughs) We're not going to start it that way. I'm going to play it with the major chords to Mm. start. And then we'll transition into mm. more of that arrangement so that we start all with the things Riley's thinking about that joy. we don't even know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and maybe you know the minor to the that, major that, shift. Like, yeah, that was an intentional thing. It did affect our liturgy yeah. in tangible ways because we're thinking about communion in that way. Yeah, if you don't know anything about music, minor chords often equal sad sounding. Yeah, if we want They're to not always it, meant to be equal right. Sad, yeah. Major equal happy. Uh, yeah. Major equals happy. It's more than that, right? Uh, I love minor chords, uh, as Riley would well attest. But, but yeah, that is like a, a basic uh, understanding. So even mm-hmm. shifting some of those chords to have a major feel yeah. is a way of saying, "Hey, there's a celebratory element to this that we're yeah. trying to tonally kind of highlight, right?" Yeah. Right, because even the yeah. words of that hymn are yeah. joyful. In yeah. Christ alone, my hope is found. Right. He is my light, my strength, my song. Like that's a joyful and phrase. As he stands in victory. I'm not, <laughs> yeah. That's I as mean, close we, as I'm going go to get to singing. Yeah. That song, even in King's <laughs> arrangement, gets very joyful. It's yeah. a joyful song, yeah. but it started in a place I didn't necessarily right. want to start, so we changed yeah. it up a little bit. Mm. Totally. Okay. So that that is, uh, I, I think, one of the ways just practically, and there's more that could be said, but you know, this podcast episode isn't going to be an hour and a half long. It might be. Probably might be. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but that's that's one kind of tonal shift that we're trying to make at Redeemer. I've mentioned that uh, from the pulpit, mm-hmm. and I'll mention it here as well. Um, okay. Very, very practically. What about frequency? How often should, maybe some people grew up in a church. I don't remember the church I grew up in, how often we had communion, but... Um, we did it once a month at my church. I okay. I know for some people, it's as rare as like twice a year or once a year. Yeah, you said quarterly. Um, quarterly, yeah, quarterly, I think, yeah. is is not uncommon. Monthly is not uncommon. Um, how, how frequent should people take communion, do you think? Every week. Every week. I would say every week. 
you all better say that. We all. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's be charitable okay. to the people That's who, what I was gonna are, go. yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. who are doing it once a quarter or once a month. Uh, I think what they're trying to do there is to not uh, make it rote or routine yeah. or ritual. Uh, they're trying to make it a special event. Yeah. Uh, communion service would be viewed as a special service, a special Sunday for them. So they're trying to retain something of that uh, that special nature of what we're doing when we come together. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, uh, first of all, I don't always think routine and ritual is a bad thing. <laughs> I think that can be a really good thing. Uh, it can be treated bad. I think you need to teach against that mm-hmm. and and remind people that it should not be something that you do uh, flippantly or that you yeah. do just because you're going through the motions. Um, but I, I also think that we're commanded to do this every time that we mm-hmm. meet together. Mm-hmm. It seems like that would make sense that every time the church gathers together, what makes that Sunday that's the once a month different than those other three Sundays yeah. that we do the same thing and we gather together and we sing and we, we hear the word read and preached and we fellowship together. That seems like the very same thing. Why would we not do it there? Mm-hmm. The other reason why, uh, many churches do it quarterly is because, uh, only like they did and they at least in my church and many baptist churches that i know they would only have it, it was a night service like you wouldn't have it during Just the morning like service a, a because it was kind of it was closed oh uh, yeah you you couldn't okay. take the lord's supper unless you were a member and so you had to give ample time to say mm-hmm. hey this is the night of the quarter that we're going to give the lord's supper uh and you must and they would even tell people if you're not a member of the church please Please do not Can you attend. just really, really quick define the Let's do that post. when we get to the fencing okay. part. Okay. Yeah, we'll yeah, talk right. about fencing because that'll be yeah. good. That'll, yeah. that'll but yeah, that's why. That's partly why because they needed to give members enough head heads, uh, head advance kind of like mm-hmm. warning, this is what we're doing it. You need to come on these day, this date to do yeah. it. So, uh, so uh, the thing I'd say about frequency, you know, we've talked before about the die for, divide, debate, mm-hmm. uh, deal with, those four Ds, we talked a lot about that in various podcast episodes. Um, I certainly think frequently frequency falls into a debate category. It shouldn't be, I don't think, a, a divide category in my view. Um, we, I was just talking with someone from our church this last week uh, that they had a, a student go off to college and their student was looking at different um, – uh, churches in the area and trying to figure out what what church they were going to go to, and oh, this made my heart happy because they were really missing Redeemer. Um, and they said, but they were trying to find this new church, and they said, oh man, this is really tough. This church only does communion. I think it was once a month or or something or once a quarter. And they're like, oh, I can't go there. And the parent was, I think, wisely walking them through that, like, well, like, okay, I, I get it. Like, yes, that's a, a good reason, maybe, and a good thing to evaluate, but but not necessarily a reason not to go to that church. And so that would be my view too. Is I think that um, the best practice, I think, is to uh, practice communion weekly. I do think that's preferable, especially if we hold to a spiritual presence view like like we do, mm-hmm. then why wouldn't you want to meet with Christ yeah. regularly in those? Don't you want more of that? Yeah, don't yeah. you want more of spiritually being nourished and, and fed by Christ in that meal, right? Yeah. And so um, I think w- the people that are most prone to go to the monthly, quarterly, maybe even yearly are folks who just hold a memorial view. Um, or, it's not very typical. Or the, of, the Catholics too, right? Because I think they only do... Oh, no, I think they do it more often than that, right? In Mass, you're, you're taking communion more regularly than that. Every week? I don't remember if it's every week, but I've never well, attended like a mass. One, so yeah. I don't know. Like day of the, the thing that I, I've always pointed to is that in Acts 20 verse seven, it says on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, yeah. like they were meeting weekly and right. they were meeting weekly to break bread. Right. And that, that break bread is a, is a way of saying the Lord's supper. So yeah. I, I think there's, I think there's even stronger biblical grounds for yeah. taking it weekly. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that the regular pattern of the early church was weekly. Mm-hmm. I think that that is, uh, 
I think Jesus' words is as often as you uh, as you eat it, e- yeah. eat it, yeah. right? And so you proclaim the Lord's like death. Right. We want to proclaim yeah. the Lord's death yeah. until He comes. So I don't often. think he, there's like a prescribed. You're in sin if you're not doing this weekly. But I do think it's preferable and and better and probably more biblically consistent mm-hmm. uh, if you're doing it weekly. Is what I would say. But yeah. I think it falls into that debate category. I don't think someone should yeah. leave a church over uh, that is practicing monthly communion, uh, communion rather than than weekly. Uh, okay, so next section, administration. Um, who can administer uh, the communion Jesus. elements? <laughs> who who can actually done. do this? Yeah, we all agree. Uh, when, when it comes to that, so right, there's different views in this. Some people would say, for example, right, in the Catholic Church, it could only be the priest because only the priest is able to um, essentially transform those elements from their 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 regular forms to being the body and blood of Christ. Only the priest can do that. Um, uh, if you're from a memorial view, it makes sense that really anybody could do that potentially because you would basically just say uh, anybody can remind us of a, a symbol. Anybody can uh, remind us to uh, remember Jesus. Um, although I think even people who hold to a memorial view might might uh, want it to be someone other. Yeah, than it's, just it's usually it's usually led later. at the it's usually led at the front by a pastor, uh-huh. mm-hmm. um, but they can be handed out by right. anybody. Mm-hmm. I think generally that's that seems sort of inconsistent to me because because the other ordinance that they would on, they would uh, honor would be baptism, mm-hmm. and I think that's almost always. Uh, fenced much, much more to just elders. Have you and been pastors, to a right? church camp lately? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, heard some yeah, I don't know that that's true. Actually, uh, I think that. I mean, I've heard so many stories of uh, Christian camps doing baptisms, of uh, uh, a community group doing a baptism, uh, not mm-hmm. having pastors or anything like that be a part of any mm-hmm. of that. That it's just kind of, uh, yeah, I, I've heard of many of those stories. Of course, that that gets into that, that gets more into a like uh, non denominational parachurch yeah church uh, like right. church camps yeah because many times if the church camp is tied to the church that's taking mm-hmm. you then they're going to follow whatever that's a good the church point. yeah church does so yes there's there's a sense in which what you're saying is true that the those kind of churches whenever they're doing those things they, they fence the baptism way more than they would. Um, uh, some other things, but I think that they typically, like the church that I grew up in, it was members only, so uh, they would yeah. definitely, yeah, they're yeah. fencing it way more. So when you say administration, what exactly do you mean? <laughs> do you mean, because like uh, yeah. we don't hand the elements out to right. people at Redeemer. Right. Maybe so one day we will. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. If we if we get enough volunteers. Okay, uh, so, uh, well, yeah, so just right there, mm-hmm. even if we did do that, you would not fence that to elders. That no. Would, yeah. No. Why? Wouldn't. Uh why wouldn't I? Because I don't think it has to be only elders that are uh, administering the um, sacraments. Let me let me ask this question to yeah. set up what we're talking about. Yeah, walk through the the process of yeah. of doing the Lord's Supper because yeah. there's mm-hmm. I feel like there's stages yeah. to it, and it, depending good. on who does that, thank you at each stage. Okay, so here's how I think of administration. Administration is really also tied with fencing the table. Um, so when communion is being administered, if you just mean can anybody grab the element or can anybody give the element, I would say yes. It, it's so long as they're a Christian. Um, right? <laughs> Even that's a little tricky to the fencing kind of argument. But anyway, all that to say. 
I, I do think that there's a way in which, because this was ordained by Jesus, I think there's a way in which the church officers, so particularly the elders who are responsible for governing, teaching, uh, and are meant to, to lead the church in that way, um, I think there's a, a way in which it makes consistent sense uh, biblically for them to oversee communion and for them to oversee the fencing of the table, meaning who can come and take it and who can't, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, can anybody, any person that just wants to, they're like, oh, yeah, I, I want to come up and have a snack or uh, or maybe, you know, more theologically, like I'm not a member of this church, but I'm a member of another church. Can I take communion? And so I think the elders have a responsibility to fence that table and to make sure that only those uh, that are supposed to be communing with Christ are communing with Christ in the Lord's table. Um, I think that's the one of the responsibilities of the elders. And so I would uh, then generally see that uh, the elders should set up communion, that the elders should be the ones to fence the table, uh, guard it. Um, and then I think that there's a teaching element that's often associated with the, the Lord's Supper with communion, that the elders are most... Uh, I think it's most biblically consistent to have them do the teaching uh, surrounding that. Now, who's actually handing out the elements, right? Like I, I would love at some point we get to a Redeemer where we have actual loaves of bread and, and people are actually uh, taking pieces of that and giving that to people as they come up to receive communion so that they're really even visually seeing, I am receiving this, right? Because right now the way that we do it is we walk up, which I love that we got back to doing that, but as they walk up and they're, they are taking, right? That's what's happening. Mm -hmm. They are taking those elements. They're not, they have to sort of do this mental thing where they're reminding themselves, this is a way in which Christ is serving me. But if we actually have people that are doing that, then that picture just becomes, I think, richer, you know, of actually being served uh, in communion. There's a way that you can still get there because you know those elements didn't just appear by themselves, you know, that someone is serving you and preparing that and having that there. Mm -hmm. But I just, I, I like the, I think it's a little bit stronger a picture when you have people actually physically handing you the elements and you yeah. are re receiving that. So. Um. When uh, when we made that shift, yeah. it means that I you mean the shift of walking up, of walking and, up because yeah, uh -huh. for the pandemic we had to change it. Uh, we, we used to do that. We do it now again. I like it. Uh, one of the things that means for me is I often don't get to take since I'm on the stage. Mm -hmm. So often I often don't get to take communion at the same exact time as everybody else. Uh, and Nikki often doesn't either. And so I'll be that person for her, mm -hmm. and I'll say I'll I will give the bread and the cup to her. Mm -hmm. And I've really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think there is, uh, right, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, rather, 1 Corinthians fourteen forty says, but all things should be done decently and in order, that there's an orderliness that's meant to happen to the worship service, and I think the elders are primarily responsible for overseeing that, making sure that is the case. And so to me, that's consistent with uh, communion. Um, Calvin was really big on it not being separated from the preaching of the word. That was like uh, a big point of Calvin's emphasis. And so therefore the person in Calvin's view that preached also ought to be the person who is setting up and guarding and, and sort of uh, welcoming people to the, the table also, mm -hmm. which is a shift that we've made in the last couple of years too, I think, or maybe last year. Yeah. So that's administration. Anything you would want to add to that? 
No, I think that's everything I would, I would think of. Yeah. Okay, then fencing. We've talked a little bit about that, but why don't you, Jared, give us uh, the three different views? Do you remember the the like closed and close and open? Do you yeah, remember so those? closed means that it's only members of that local body right. can take, can, can, can can take, take communion yep. at that time. Come receive. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so like you would, you would, like I said, you yeah. have a special kind of meeting for that so that only people are members. And I don't think they ever took attendance or anything like that, but I, I know that they were very kind of adamant that they only wanted members because, and it's for good reason, they wanted people who are believers to take it. They didn't mm-hmm. want anybody who was an unbeliever. So mm-hmm. the way that, and it, sometimes it's tied with congregationalism, but they, because they knew that everybody coming as a member was a, had a credible profession of faith, right. then therefore they could know that the people who are taking it are going to take it correctly because yeah. they are Christians. Right. So, uh, so there's that's closed. Yeah, the only people in our church at Redeemer that have been that have sat down with an elder have been evaluated in terms of sharing the profession of faith that we've talked, we've met, and the elders have agreed upon that have said we believe this person has a credible profession of faith are our members. It's not to say right. there's not other people that attend our church that aren't Christians. There obviously are that are not members, but those are the only people that the elders have sort of intentionally evaluated. Mm-hmm. And so if you believe that communion is only for Christians, there's sort of a logical link to say, well, then we should only, a way of fencing the table is to say that only members can take communion, right? right? Yeah, yep. that's called closed. That's right? closed yeah. with a D. Yeah. Close, Yeah. like as the door's almost closed. <laughs> there's a crack. Yeah, yeah. there's a crack uh-huh. in there. <clears throat> is that... As long as you are a member of some church, and mm-hmm. typically the way that the fencing sounds is that as long as you are a member of a church in uh, that preaches the same gospel that you've heard right. here today in good standing, then you're welcome to come yeah. and take. You're a member uh, in good standing. Yeah, right? you, yep. you're you're welcome to come and take it uh-huh. here. So they're still requiring membership, mm-hmm. but they're not requiring it to be at that local church. You're saying a church that we trust has evaluated yep. you and your credit and says that you've made a credible profession right. of faith. Exactly, and you're welcome to come and, and yep. even that puts communion. a lot of the onus on the person coming to receive communion yeah. instead of the elders' yeah. defense. Right? Yep, because right. they're still having to evaluate, yeah. does this church, my church, preach the same gospel as this one? Right. Right. Does, uh, yeah, that kind yeah, of and stuff. You, right. And, you know, so the, in good standing means that you're not under church discipline right, right. now yeah. because that's literally what church discipline is part of it. Part is, of what it's doing, is, yeah. is to say you're no longer welcome at the table, yeah. which is why church membership is very important yeah. and why what that means. So, But that's a whole other discussion. Which, which I doesn't that, if you hold to a spiritual presence view and then there's church discipline and you're cut off from the table, it, man, that's even more powerful. Makes it more profound in a, in a, to me. In a way yeah. to me as well. Yeah. yeah, that's why in Catholic church, excommunication was such a big deal. Yeah. Because they're yeah. literally cutting you off from the body of Christ. Right. Yeah. And then so finally is open, what most people call is open, mm-hmm. which means as long as you're a Christian, uh, then you can come and take uh, mm-hmm. take the Lord's Supper as well, right? Which right now our practice is open. Yeah, that's our our practice uh, historically in our our lengthy seven years uh, <laughs> at Redeemer has been uh, uh, open communion. Meaning, if someone has a credible, they have to evaluate and say, "Yes, right. I am a Christian." Um, they may not be a member at Redeemer. They may not be a member of any church um, in terms of. Uh, walking through a membership process, right? But that if they have said, yes, I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, I believe in him, um, then they're welcome to come and take communion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so those are the different views. And so uh, fencing is really about trying to make sure, depending on what your view is in those three C's or, or <laughs> two C's, two one C's O. Two C's and one O. Yeah. They um, need to figure out. Like, there's, uh, there's gotta be something C, for that opening. The illiterate, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, need, uh, I need to figure out a third yeah. uh, C for that. <laughs> but that is then how, right, depending on your view, you would then fence it accordingly, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the the last thing before just maybe address a couple of uh, FAQs would be uh, where to look during communion. So, not you know at the cup at the cup. Um, what do you, you know, but meaning when we're actually receiving communion, what are we doing mentally? Maybe would be another way to say it, right? Like sort of when I say where to look, I'm meaning what are we paying attention to? What are we meant to sort of have magnified in our minds? Like uh, you were talking during, before with the, the misconception about uh, examining one's, oneself. Right. Is it passage? only that we're looking at ourselves, uh, which would just be the Meaning, are we meant to be directing everyone when when we teach to communion or when someone's taking communion? Are we meant to only look inwardly at our own lives, our own selves, our own sin, our own struggles, our own failure, and kind of uh, repent very individualistically? Is that it? Is that all that we're we're meant to do, or is it more than that? Less than that? What you know? Certainly, I don't think anybody thinks it's less than that. Mm. I think everybody at least agrees that is some portion some element of what's happening there but uh what else what else where else are we supposed to be looking um during communion and i mean i think you would say look to christ you would look at yourself and see at that not that you're worthy of taking it but that you've received this that you've received the 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 salvation that is provided in what the mill represents mm-hmm. the body and blood broken and shed by Jesus Christ the other one is and going back to that 1 Corinthians 10 that when he talks about it he says in verses um, let's see which one 17 because there is one bread mm-hmm. we who are many are one body right. for we all partake of the one bread mm-hmm. and so it's like one bread one body one bread it's over and over again this is a uniting factor between mm-hmm. God's people that when we as a congregation, when we as the body of Christ take the body and blood of Christ, it is a unifying meal. We should be looking around. Like, not that you should start looking at everybody in the eye. You know, when I when I when I was growing up as the memorial view, you went you'd like you didn't look around. You didn't look anybody in the eye. You just looked straight down at the floor. You contemplated your mm-hmm. your sin to make sure that there wasn't anything in there that you'd you know, just immediately die from taking whenever you took it. But um, <laughs> why not but, look people in the eye? <clears throat> because you, it's more of it's a in the memorial view, at least in the, how I was raised, it was more of an, a personal thing. Mm-hmm. It yeah. wasn't. So you wouldn't like, have any problem if we're like we're walking down the aisle to get communion together. Right. And you're in one aisle and I'm the other, and I look over and I make eye contact with you. Yeah. And be like, yeah. I'm. I'm, <laughs> I'm totally fine with that. That's yeah. really weird. Yeah. I'm totally fine with it. Like they would say, that, like we would have said it was a uniting meal in the fact that we were all taking it together, but it was more of a personal time for me to kind of review my life and make sure yeah. that I'm, I'm worthy to, not worthy, but uh, make sure that my life's in order and so that I'm not going to come under a curse of, of some sort. But mm-hmm. I think that this is more of a like, I mean, when I when I go to a wedding mm-hmm. and where there's a meal served, I'm looking around the room, I'm seeing how everybody else is excited about that this is going on. You look at the bride, you look at like, mm. you, you look at everywhere and you're going, this is an amazing thing that we're partaking in. And I, that's what I think that we're supposed to do is that we are supposed to look around and go, man, this is amazing. So like just this past Sunday, I'm looking around and I, you know, I sit down, we, t- we 
talk to the the girls about what's going on. We take it, but then I notice that there's another father over there, and he's got his kids together. And then there's a mom, and she's you know contemplating it and looking uh, looking inwardly as she she. Uh, she takes the mill and then there's somebody else that I was looking at that it's like over and over again that like it's it's such a joy that we are we are all fellowshipping in the presence and in in the presence of Christ mm-hmm. and I'm like this is amazing mill and then I think wow what this mill will be on that day when we take it with him in his kingdom mm-hmm. yeah kind That's of good. that like I was saying earlier you you look it's a, it is a remembrance of what Christ has, what has, what he's done on the mm-hmm. cross, right? And it's also a remembrance that there's the feast to come, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm not going to go to the yeah. wedding supper of the lamb and look down, you know? <laughs> it, it, I'm not going to be like, oh, let me think about this. No, I'm like looking around going, man, this is awesome. We're, we're eating with Jesus in, in the heavenly kingdom. Yeah, mm-hmm. hmm. yeah I think uh, that there is an, an element of looking at ourselves in terms of, uh, you know, it, Man, is there is there sin in my life that I'm just clinging to unrepentantly? Um, and I've just heard the good news of the gospel. I've just heard of the beauty of Christ. Why am I being controlled by submitting to serving this idol instead of the glorious Savior? You know, mm-hmm. so there's a, an element of that, and where we are then meant to repent. But just like we don't repent so that God will accept us, right? We repent and he has already received and accepted us even before we repent. And so in our repentance, we're just reflecting the reality of who we are. I'm, I'm in Christ. My identity is in Christ. And so I repent because that's consistent with my identity. Um, I think there's a way in which we're meant to remind ourselves of that, um, proclaim the gospel to ourselves in that, in that sense. Um, but I also think that we're meant to, as you said, look around. When, when Paul talks about discerning the body, right? the issue that was going on there in, in 1 Corinthians 11 was that they're selfishly, right? Some of them are getting yeah. drunk. Some of yeah. them aren't having any of the elements because the other people decided to, to go for thirds and fourths. The yeah. There's disunity, yeah. Yeah. It's right? Like, yeah. It's like the thing that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. You think about it as Jesus throwing a party right. and everybody's welcome to come. Yeah. Well, they all got there early and, and ate all the food. The wine. You yeah. know, and it's <laughs> like, oh yeah, those people coming late. Right. Like that's what they were doing. Exactly. And so there's this way, and when you say discerning, when, when Paul talks about discern the body, he's talking about, um, are you in, are you reflecting unity with the body right now in your are, are, or have you been acting in a way that is against this body have you been um, acting selfishly towards this body are you acting unloving toward this body are you um, are you in unresolved conflict with people in this body discern that right now because what you're about to proclaim is I love Christ and his body that he has united me to. Mm -hmm. And I am in this meal, I'm feasting with my brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. in Christ, Mm -hmm. and we are getting to reflect that glorious reality together. Amen. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Oh, and by the way, I hate that person across the way from me. And so (laughs) it's like, hold on, like, be mindful of what it, you know, we've used now the wedding analogy a couple of times, but think about if, if you're walking up to marry your bride and all the while you can't stand her. Right, like, mm. well, then you're proclaiming something that you're sitting there in that ceremony, and you're proclaiming that you love her and that you're devoted to her and you're committed to her. And the reason why they used to ask the question of, "Does anybody have any objections? If so, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace," is because that was the time when someone was was then meant to stand up and say, uh, 
this guy's a liar. <laughs> She's a liar. They're, what they're about to proclaim is utterly false, right? Mm-hmm. This is not and actually how they feel. Usually that would be in the context of the church. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. The wedding yeah. in the church right. with the church. You know, and so there's a way in which when we take communion, we're meant to say, what am I proclaiming right now? I, I am proclaiming that I'm in Christ, okay? Um, so I shouldn't take communion if I'm not in Christ. Yeah. Um, I'm proclaiming that I'm united with this body of people in my love for Jesus and that we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ and that we are reflecting his body in, the, in this world. And so if I can't stand or I'm working against a particular church body for some reason, I'm meant to discern that and then go and repent and confess and walk through reconciliation with them so that my confession matches my actual my actions, right? Um, or my actions rather match your, my confession. Your confession and your proclamation. Right. Because it says that when you take this meal, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yeah. If we're lying in part of yeah. our life, then our proclamation is not true. Right. And so yeah. we want to make sure that what we're proclaiming in taking it is true and valid with, along with what he has done, what his yeah. blood and his body accomplished in our life. Yeah. So I think we look around, and but even think about that, even that inward element of looking, there's a way in which it could be sort of a pouring over every uh, hidden area of our lives of sin, and it can turn into sort of a what's sometimes called morbid introspection. Like it's just unhelpful because the reality is because we're we're sinful creatures and that we do not we're not yet utterly free of of our sinful nature there's a way in which we're always going to find some sin that's there and so if we think that's the point then we're not going to be able to exhaust our repentance yeah. we'll we'll, ha- we'll be repenting of our our poor repentance yeah. right matter of fact you should go you should sit down and go i am not worthy to take this right. and that and then you hear jesus say all of you who have no money, yeah. come and eat. Right. You who have nothing, come yeah. and eat. Right. You're invited. Right. Like, come, partake of me. So even the introspective element can either bend us toward sort of lament and grief and sorrow, which maybe there's, a, I think there are probably times appropriate for that, but it can also bend us toward gratefulness, right? As we consider mm-hmm. ourselves and we go, I don't deserve to go eat, and yet Christ beckons me anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And the same with discerning the body. There's a way in which we, at times, I think are meant to, as we look around, that we're meant to go, man, I'm in um, broken fellowship with that person. There's conflict. I, I, I know, Lord, that you're calling me to go forgive them as you have forgiven me. But there's other times that I think we are meant to look around the body and go, Man, look at the families that are praying together. Look at the 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 people that have walked up. Oh man, that person became a Christian. They're going and they're receiving communion for the first time. Oh man, like looking around can also be that, right? Yeah. Of just looking around and rejoicing in the church that Jesus is building. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is, of course, looking back is looking back at the work of Christ and and uh, when he says remember, um, it, it's in that context, it's more than just a, a, a mental recollection. I think it's um, remembering. It goes deeper than that. It is uh, remembering that we are, in a sense, one with the disciples in the upper room. That we are, uh, we're calling to mind in a in a deeper way than just um, sort of a a memory. That yeah. there's a way that there's like a, the faithfulness of God is brought into the present moment. I think is one way I've heard it described. And then the other one is looking forward, mm-hmm. right? That we actually look forward to, as you've said now multiple times, or we've said like proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. So mm-hmm. we're looking forward and saying, hey, as we receive communion, this is just a foretaste of the eternal meal that we're going to eat, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, good to say something else? Well, I think, I mean, even discussing these yeah. things, like, uh, you know, looking around, looking up, looking yeah. down, looking looking back, looking forward. Yeah. Like, when you think about that and you do that in that time, you're coming forward, you're taking that meal... I think this is exactly why the the people I was telling you, you know, those old English Baptist uh, 
they called this a soul refreshing mm. or soul nourishing mm. meal. Mm. Like we don't think about it like that. We think mm. about it as, oh, we're doing that little thing where I take that little piece of bread and that little <laughs> grape juice or wine or whatever yeah. it is, and I go down and I sit and I eat. And I'm okay, done, over. But like for for them with that with the spiritual presence view, and you think about these things, your soul is nourished and refreshed. You go out from that, and you're like, man, this has been a great time to have mm. been in the presence of Jesus mm-hmm. and His people. You know what this makes me want to do is uh, during that time of yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> during that time of uh, reflection is it makes me want to like put up some questions or something on the screen just for people to be able to ask that are consistent with mm. this you know look up around inward forward backward yeah <laughs> it makes me want to uh, do I, I might need to do that just because I, I think that a lot of times when that happens people sit there and they're like I have. N- this is just a moment, yeah. a minute of silence that is feels kind of awkward and um, Lord, forgive me and kind of move on. You yeah. know? Well, so. I mean, now with this being on the podcast, everybody will have heard those and will yeah. memorize them there perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> Up, around, backward, forward, inward. There we go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, last section here uh, is some FAQs. So Riley, well, you had a question. We just kept... Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I wrote up a couple of uh, places for us to go in this conversation on the whiteboard and Riley just wanted to jump ahead. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But now we're, your moment has come, Riley. What, is, yeah, what was well, your the question? The first one I was asking is like, what's the difference between the church gathering on Sunday yeah. and when the church gathers in smaller groups during the week, like in community groups? Uh, should they take communion in community groups? As mm-hmm. it sounds like, I, I think some people would argue, well, uh, the house church kind of thing in Acts 2 seems very similar to what we do in community groups. And we have a meal there sometimes too. Shouldn't we do that? Do communion there as well? What would you say to that person? Stop asking questions. No, <laughs> uh, no I, I. it's a good question. And there's a, you know, uh, $100 answer and there's a 10 cent answer and I'm probably going to give the 10 cent answer. Um, but there's there's more that could be said about this. Uh, and if you have money to add on top of my 10 cents, then please okay. do. Um, <laughs> maybe together we'll get to a quarter. Uh, but I, I think my short answer would be, because this can lead us into some deeper places that I we don't have time for, is I think it's a meal meant to be taken together as a body. Um, and when I say that, I don't mean just a small segment of the body. I mean the body. Whatever constitutes the church body, I think, is meant to um, take that together. So um, if two people, three people, four people, for example, were uh, meeting together uh, for a Bible study and they all attended Redeemer, in one sense, they are Redeemer Church, in a sense. In another sense, they're they're not right. Like if someone says, "Oh, this is your tr- oh, so where's the which one of you is an elder?" Oh, none of us are. Oh, okay. Um, who in here is responsible for you know? Like as you started kind of walking through what it actually means to be a a church, um, you'd start to go, "Oh, you're not quite the." assembled body. You're not quite the ecclesia. You're not quite the the gathering together of the church in the way that um, under, under the oversight of the elders and care. And mm-hmm. like, you, you, that's not quite what's happening here. You are an expression in some sense of the church truly and really, um, but you are not the the local church assembled. I, I don't think in the, in, uh, the way that it's um, the language is used of talking about the body of Christ. I think the body of Christ in terms of a local expression is meant to be the body of Christ, all who are in 
particularly thinking of those who are members, um, united together uh, as that local expression. And so um, sort of like if I said, we're going to do a family meal in my house, we're going to do a family meal. Um, and we eat dinner around the table together. It's a family meal. Now, if one of my kids happens not to be there, especially as they get older, it's okay. Like That's still a family meal, right? Just because one of the kids happens not to be present there. But the kid by himself or just my two sons, uh, if they get together and they go and have coffee, I don't think that's the same thing as a family mm-hmm. meal, right? Like mm-hmm. they are family and they're having a meal together, but that's there's something different about kind of that, that picture of a family meal is the family is assembling, we're together, and there's something that we're proclaiming in our togetherness is different than when it's just one or two of us, right? Or three of us even. So I think that just multiplies as you go beyond just a small family of maybe, you know, four to six people and you go to a, a congregation of 150 or whatever is that that when you take communion in a community group or um, maybe just within your own immediate family, I don't think that you're really picturing what communion is meant to picture. So think about some of those things we talked about, about looking around, for example. How are you really going to do that in a way that's truly taking in the body that you are united to if you're not taking communion with the body that you're actually united to, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's a a sin for a a person to take communion in a community group um, or for them to take it in a – at their non – their Christian – workplace or their Christian nonprofit or, or something like that, their uh, parachurch organization. I don't think that's a sin. I just don't think that's what communion is meant to uh, picture in all of its facets. Mm-hmm. I okay. think that was more of a 25 cent answer. So. Oh, is yeah. it 25? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You got up here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, kind yeah. of a related question yeah. then. One of the places that we see uh, communion happen a lot uh, that's not in the church gathering right. is a, at a wedding. Right. The husband and wife will want as oh, their look first at the time. time I've got to go. Or whatever <laughs> will be, uh, will be at, to take communion together. Yeah. Um, I think we can probably see where this is going. But yeah. Why? Why? For the same that reasons that I just said that yeah, would yeah. basically exactly. be the same reasons. Yeah. And I think it's also very awkward that it's a unifying meal and that you're standing like only two people and the whole thing right. are standing up and then then they're unifying in some way in which now just just like a whole bunch of onlookers who are coming from varying backgrounds. You know, you've got unbelievers, you got believers, you've got people from different religions. They're watching this meal. And I don't think it is, I, I mean, even if it is, is like your local elder doing your wedding, mm-hmm. I don't think it's right for them to do it because of what it says. It, it says that only these yeah. two people are the church rather than we as a church are taking this meal. And so therefore I think, I think it's an improper use of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. I don't think the Lord's Supper was given primarily to us as individuals. I think yeah. it was given to the church. Mm-hmm. So it's a act of the church. And so if you take it individually um, on your own, right? If you sit in your house and you go, I want to take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to get some bread. I'm going to get some wine and I'm going to take it by myself. I want to, I want to meet with Jesus. Um, and it, you know, I'm going to sort of summon him. Uh, you know, I, I pour my wine, I get my bread out and now Jesus is going to meet with me spiritually. I'm, I, that's not communion. Um, you, you can be remembering Christ. You can be doing some important things in that and reflecting on Jesus. But I don't think that is, by its very nature, communion any more than if you take a bath and you dip your head under the water, that's baptism. Mm. I, I, it, they're different because it's given to the church. And therefore, because it's sort of like because Jesus is the one who gave it, he's the one who gets to define its usage and yeah. what it's for and what it's meant to symbolize and all of that. And then scripture mm-hmm. unpacks that for us. And so I think that. Jesus gave this to the church. It's meant to be a meal that 
the church remembers their unity, that they enjoy with one another, they enjoy the unity with Christ. And so for some of those reasons, along with others, I'd say, I don't think that communion at a wedding is is right, is something that we ought to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I'm a total hypocrite in that we did communion at our wedding. This is before I'd come to I these convictions. Oh, yeah. yeah, there Man. you go. Jared, you're the I'm only the righteous only... one among us. <laughs> I... If there was but one righteous have person, ever, have you I'd ever spare this town. over a wedding where they took communion? No, I actually tell them I won't do it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, I do, and I do also. <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah, yeah, at yeah, the yeah. time that I... I've I, only done two weddings, by the way, so... Okay, never mind. Okay, so anybody that wants to get married, make sure you ask Pastor Jared. If, <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, we did communion at our wedding. I didn't have the uh, theological convictions that I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it was just like, oh, what's a thing that we can do to show that we love each other and that we love and that we want God to be a part yeah, of our, our marriage? Kind of yeah, like, yeah, and so here we'll take communion together. That yeah. that was, and so I I know. What happens, what people get hung up in is they're like, well, isn't that something really beautiful to picture? And I'm like, yes, it is. But the Bible doesn't just prescribe the ends. It prescribes the means that we get to the ends. So if we say, I want to glorify Christ and I want to proclaim that he's the foundation of our marriage, it's like, awesome. But you also have to think about how you're going to actually go about proclaiming that and whether or not you're doing it in the right way. So let me throw a hypothetical at you. Yeah. Let's say it's 20 years from now oh boy. and my daughter is 24. Okay. She's getting married. Okay. She wants to get married at Redeemer Church. Uh-huh. Uh, and she Are we still in a gay. gym at that point? We're not in a gym. We're okay, at this good. beautiful okay. church that we've built awesome. up and designed ourselves. Okay. Awesome. Good, good. Want Thank you for vision yeah, casting for absolutely. me. Absolutely. I have ideas about that, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let's say she comes to, to you and says, I'd yeah. like you to do my wedding yeah. and I'd like you to, uh, I'd like it to be in the church with the church uh, and I'd like to do communion. Yeah. Is that then a setting where you'd say, yeah, that's appropriate now, since we are both with the church and in the church? So like on a Sunday morning? On a Sunday morning. I think I'd like, probably do it. Yeah. yeah. Like, let's say, yeah, let's say this was like right after benediction. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, time for the wedding. And then, <laughs> and then they get yeah. married and they have to I mean, Which I would actually love. Set, if if anybody wants to do that, I would totally support this. <laughs> if we're doing, I know you said we'd be in a nice, beautiful place at that point. <laughs> but if we're still doing setup, that's like the ideal time to do it. <laughs> like, right? yeah. Yeah, uh, it right. has to be on the first Sunday of the month when we don't uh, have to tear yeah. down. Yeah, exactly. And then you can have your wedding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I think if it was like the whole church is essentially invited and assembled together. Um, I, I might have, this might be an area that later I kick myself and go, Oh no, I wasn't thinking about that in all the ways I should have. But as far as I could think of it right now, I would, I would go, I, I think that that would be uh, reasonable. And I think still holds together a lot of what I think is meant to be expressed in communion. Mm-hmm. Um, the only element I would probably have to chew on a little bit would just be, that um, are they taking this sort of off by themselves so or are they what, taking it very much say. as a part of the yeah, body, yeah. you know? I, I was at a wedding recently where a similar kind of thing happened. Mm-hmm. It was not in a Sunday service, but instead of doing communion, they wanted their first act as a couple to be congregational worship. Oh, yeah. And so uh-huh. we led a hymn, yeah. and they actually stepped down into the yeah. congregation. Yeah, that's yeah. beautiful. That's, there. It yeah. would be the similar thing with right. communion. Yeah. I think that would be, off. yeah, I think that would, I, I would be inclined to do that. I think mm-hmm. if they asked me to, I, I would do that. So let Ari know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. If Ari, if you're listening to this, I meant to say 30 years. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that because of uh, my understanding of communion biblically, then that has implications for all sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. Of um, It had implications for COVID, uh, why we didn't do communion uh, for people. We didn't encourage people to take communion um, 
yeah. at virtually, right? We didn't encourage that. We didn't that. send them little communion didn't packs. Didn't send them communion yeah. packets. We didn't want that because uh, we actually want them assembled with the body of, of Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, thanks, guys. One. That was a lot. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, go ahead. You can always cut it if it's getting, you know, we're yeah, getting we sweaty in this hot room in here. But, it yeah. is an hour and a half. Oh, okay. nice. Um, okay. But uh, the last one I think that popped to my mind is what's the significance of the actually bread and wine or bread and juice instead of any other element. Mm. Uh, And I I think there could be exceptions if you like literally can't have bread or wine or bread or juice uh, where that might be like, okay, we'll make do with what we have kind of mission field kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. in general uh, we hold that kind of, kind of highly, like we want it to be actually bread and actually some sort of grape product. Mm. Right. (laughs) Why is that? And, and what's, is there significance behind that? Mm. Like you'd say, it's probably not appropriate. I'll direct this one at Jared because Gabe's been talking a lot. <laughs> yeah, talk to me about. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I think so. As someone who's served on the mission field, I, I mean, so let me say this first. I think that we are intended to have bread, a bread substance, and a grape substance of some sort, if you can, preferably. That that is like, like the default should be that, um, and I think that's because that's what Jesus used for his taking the Passover and moving it into now the Lord's Supper, uh, he's carrying on those kind of continuation of like, this is an Exodus event. This is a a meal of the Exodus. One was from Egypt. Now this one is out of slavery and bondage to sin. That's what those, those are linked to. But I do think that at times, this is my personal opinion, that if you are in a situation, for instance, overseas or somewhere that does not have grapes of some sort, that as, as long, what I typically say is try to find something that is going to be a, now I wouldn't go with I mean, I guess if you got it, but Kool-Aid, but something that's going to, that's going to resemble blood, you know? So, uh, for instance, we were in villages that didn't have grape juice and we, but they did have like pomegranate juice. Mm-hmm. And so we said, well, use, use the pomegranate cause it's red and it's a juice of some sort. Use that. Um, and then they had like, I don't even remember what we had as bread. I think they might've had a bread of some sort, but, uh, I mean, I've known guys who told people just to use a rice cake, uh, and break it, um, uh, and then use a juice. I'd, it's not preferable. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't want that to be the case forever. But I'm not going to make a church and the backside of China start growing a vineyard so that they can have a grape juice for Lord's Supper. I think that's a uh, too much of a, a burden upon them when they when their like land can't support that and they can't sell it and they would have to cut down their fields mm. that where they can make a living uh, to do that. Mm. What about the uh, the significance of juice versus wine? We'd made a shift recently at Redeemer where when we redid this, we also offered wine alongside mm-hmm. with the juice. Why? I think it's because of what they what the symbol was used. I think we should try. I, sh- I think we should try to have exactly what they had to our best of our ability. But we have juice for the sake of conscience. If someone's conscience does not permit them to drink wine, or if they have an allergy or something like that, then we want to make it available to them too and not not fence somebody inappropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. so I think that's that's what I would say. Mm. Gabe, tell me how I was wrong. I think that uh, I agree with you in the missionary context that you, you and I have talked about that part a lot. Where yeah, I wouldn't do that for like a college yeah, student. Yeah, right. So there's, to me, there's a difference in between what we say in terms of, hey, this is non-normative. This happens, right? It's uh, I've made the argument around baptism before that if there was a person that became a Christian but they were uh, bedridden, they couldn't get out of their bed, right? Um, 
literally moving them out of their bed to go immerse them in water might kill them. I don't think then that it is wrong for me to sprinkle or pour uh, as they're in their bed, right? I, I don't think that's wrong at all. Um, so I think that we have some flexibility in some of those things in in uh, extreme circumstances. Um, but I think that we should see those things as non-normative. Mm-hmm. And so we, right, uh, it's like the, the old adage of... Uh, Oh, I just forgot it. But it's like the exception proves the rule. Is that mm, right? Yeah. yeah. So like <clears throat> I think there has to still be a rule that we say, okay, what's generally consistently what we're meant to do? And so for me, I, I prefer uh, wine and think that wine is serves as a better um, picture more consistently uh, in Scripture with uh, what is being – what is being symbolized because there is symbol, there are symbols that are happening in communion. It's not in saying that Christ is spiritually present, by the way, we're not saying that these, there are no, there's no symbol to this. There is still a symbol to all of this. Right. Um, And, uh, and yet it is pointing also to a a real reality. So, um, but wine in scripture is often used to describe gladness. It's used to describe uh, the, the, that's what I was trying to look up in Matthew nine, uh, 17, when Jesus says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. And I understand that to be talking about the Holy Spirit indwelling a, a believer. Um, and she, she, I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. And so, that, and so I would understand that to, to be that. And so I think that wine there is, is symbolic of the indwelling Holy Spirit. I think that uh, in Isaiah, uh, where is it? Oops, I went too far. Isaiah Jeremiah here. Uh, I should just look this up on my computer because it would be faster. But uh, Isaiah 55, when it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So uh, there again, wine is used symbolically as part of the the new creation. And wine, we know, is present at the the feast, and it was present at the Lord's Supper. And so I think wine is, is often... It, you know, talks about wine gladdening the heart, right? Like there's a way that I think even that particular uh, element is carries within it something of the symbol that's meant to be conveyed through the receiving of communion. So I think that wine is preferred, but I think to me it's not, my own view is not that either one totally fine, no big deal, no difference. It's wine is preferred, but I think that we should have juice available because some people either, maybe it's an allergy, some people it's their conscience would really provoke them here. Maybe either a struggle with alcoholism or the way they grew up and they just haven't quite worked through all of that. And I don't want that to be a hindrance. And so to me, it becomes this thing of, okay, I think wine is the preferred way. Just like during the Passover, um, God didn't just he actually prescribed certain things, the bitter root or the the bitter herbs and all this, because they were actually tied to the story that they were telling and different elements that it was meant to remind them of as they were walking through the Passover story. I think that wine and bread actually carry some of that same symbolic weight of as we take something of the wine, as we take the wine, as we eat of the bread, that even those elements in themselves actually bear some symbolic and actual uh tangible weight, right, to what's being expressed, I think. Um, and so I want to be – so I'm reticent to uh, then 
move away from those things because I think they actually matter in the administration of it as well. Um, but I, like I said, I think juice is acceptable in that uh, for a variety of, of reasons. Um, but it's why I would never, uh, except for maybe in some extreme, extreme circumstance, I would never um, administer communion using saltines and Coca-Cola. I wouldn't see that as acceptable practice uh, for us because of my understanding of what the wine and the bread are actually uh, portraying and meant to symbolize in scripture. So that's, yeah, that's my, that's my view, but good question. Good questions. Thanks guys. This is a, a good topic. I don't know if everybody stuck with us the whole time. Uh, we might've got put you. on, yeah, yeah. Might get, we got put on a two time speed at some point here, yeah. but uh, uh, this is obviously a lot and there's, believe it or not, much, much, much more that you could uh, look into in all of this. But um, yeah, if, if you want to talk about this further, as you mean always, the ways of the Lord are unfathomable. <laughs> that is what I meant. No, uh, if, if you want to talk about this more, if this something we said piqued your interest, or maybe you, um, well, we talked about like coming out of a memorial view and, and that was, that was your view. And now you're hearing about spiritual presence view and you're going, what in the world, what church do I go to? Or what does that mean? Or maybe you're just curious and want to know more about it. Um, man, one of the reasons why we do these podcast episodes is so that it would provoke questions and curiosity and a desire to learn more in you. And then that you would come and talk to, to, uh, your pastors and, and let us walk through those things with you as, as we try to grow to, as uh, disciples of Jesus together. So, yeah. Well, thanks guys. Thanks for, uh, being a part of this conversation and, and for all the ways you contributed and hopefully Redeemer was of benefit to you as well. Yeah.